What's up? Welcome to the Confluence VC podcast. This podcast is meant to give you a personal glimpse into the next era of investors and operators. This week we had on David Tedden of Versatile VC. Versatile is a different type of fund that looks to back capital efficient startups. The fund primarily works with founders raising capital, founders in transition, consultants and job seekers, and students and professors. David's a founding partner of the fund, and on top of running all the day-to-day operations at Versatile, he also has built up a media empire, covering every aspect and detail of venture capital. In this talk, we discuss opportunities within the VC tech stack and why investors are late adopters of new software, signaling risk when it comes to raising a fund via general solicitation, and thoughts on why seeking venture capital is the wrong move for most companies. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yo, everybody, Confluence family, it is a blessing to have you all here today. Thank you for joining us. We have in the crib, David Tedden, who is one of the original people who set out to build something similar to Confluence, and we probably couldn't exist without someone like him here. So without sharing anything about his story, which has a lot of really cool projects, just want to thank you for coming on, man. Honored to be here, and I appreciate your kind words. For sure. How about in a few minutes you give us who is David Tedden? And how did David Tedden become? So grew up in Northern California, Marin County, learned a program when I was about 10, back when uh, you did that in, in school, uh, and worked as a investment banker, strategy consultant, and then serial fintech entrepreneur with two exits. In 2011, I was fortunate to join FF Venture Capital as the first outside partner when we were 10 million AUM. And we were just our founder, John Frankel, and CFO and an associate. And we grew the firm to 25 people and over 150 million AUM. And then I was recruiting the Hoff Capital, another emerging VC in New York, which had single digit million AUM when I joined. I was the first outside partner to join the firm, besides three co-founders who all grew up together in Egypt. And we grew that firm as well to a total 70 limited partners across 21 countries and more than 10x AUM during my tenure. And at both firms, fortunate to invest. I have had a long-standing interest in fintech, so most of my investments have been in the fintech space, but have some other investments elsewhere as well. And have particular interest in Israel, where I lived for three years, and Canada. My father's French, so by American standards, I'm synthetically French, uh, synthetically Canadian by virtue of being French-American. So that's brief background. I'm now building a new VC firm, Versatile VC. Website is versatilevc.com. Uh, and looking forward to the opportunity to share a little bit more about our thesis. For sure. I mean, while we're on that topic, like you're pretty involved in almost all relevant venture communities, like, and you're one of the first people there. I want to figure out how we can help people get involved with what you're doing. You want to maybe give us a quick three to four ways 
we can be involved or support your work with Versatile and your other projects? So thank you for asking. First of all, I welcome feedback. If people have ideas on our website or social media or content, love to hear from you. There are opportunities to join our team. We list on our website our currently open jobs. And then we and any other emerging manager will entertain opportunistically people joining if, they're, if it makes sense. So if you think that you would fit into the team in some way and have unique value add, feel free to reach out. The worst that can happen is no, and maybe in a year from now we'll have budget to hire you. But we do have some openings for part-time roles like EIR and Venture Partner listed on our site with details and what that entails. We also, of course, welcome the opportunity to co-invest with other VCs in the community. And we also welcome ideas for joint marketing initiatives. So we have a number of areas we, where we are particularly focused. For example, alternative VC, meaning new financial structures for investing in companies other than the traditional preferred equity convertible note structures, the tech stack of the private capital markets, diversity. And so if you're organizing an event in those areas, there might be an opportunity to partner across market and join together my community with whatever sort of community you may be involved with. And that applies not just to, to your organization, Confluence, but also to other organizations and other communities that other funds out there are building. For sure. For those people who are building other funds, I think you have a, a pretty unique position to inform our audience. Tell us the advantages of starting with a new fund, new thesis, and not being locked into pre-existing obligations with your previous investors? Well, look, I think if someone in the community is on a partner track at a respected fund, then you should stay there and rise up, right? It's much less risky uh, and much easier. And launching a new fund is a 12 to 18 month process just to fundraise. And then what's your new fund size? Usually pretty modest and then takes more to fund too. This is a get rich slow industry. So I, I find there's a lot of people interested in being an emerging manager, but when you look at the economics, you have to budget for a long road to building a firm that is in any way comparable in terms of economic impact to what you could do by staying at a reputable fund in a good role. So the big advantage of starting a new fund is you can design a firm with a thesis that addresses the market as you see it today. And if you have a, a differentiated approach that you think you're not able to execute on at your particular firm, then maybe it makes sense for someone to launch a new fund. In my case, I have, I'll answer the question about what our thesis is in two ways, right? So one way, which is the way most VCs answer it, is industry and tech size. So we are particularly interested in fintech and sales tech, although we are a generalist investor, and we're typically writing checks of 200K to 1 mil, either leading or joining syndicates. But the other way to answer your question is how we're designing the firm operationally, which to me is the more interesting question because um, that uh, I think is the greater differentiation because there are a lot of firms out there that would give an answer like what I just gave in terms of check size and industry, but very few firms will give you the same answer as me in terms of operationally how we're thinking about it. So there are three main things we're doing that, that are unusual in our ecosystem. So the first is we're creating a community for founders in transition. These are founders who maybe they exited their company and they're now independently wealthy or they shut down their company and they're figuring out what to do next. And maybe their spouse is saying, honey, enough excitement. Let's go get a job in health insurance. So we want to help those founders in whatever their path in life is. Start a new company, become an angel investor, become a VC, take board seats, consult, 
we think this is a unique population, and we've built out a set of proprietary free resources to help founders in transition. And I know this community because I've been in this position, both having exited a company successfully and having shut down a company. So I know the, the pain and the joy. We're particularly focused on capital efficient companies. We all know that the market is frothy right now, and some investors will do great with their vintage 2021 funds, but it's an extremely safe bet that some investors will not do well with their vintage 21 funds. So one of our filters is companies that have a clear roadmap towards profitability and are not just relying on later investors putting more money into the company in the hopes of becoming profitable at some indefinite. We have the flexibility to use alternative VC structures where appropriate. NDVC is the firm that's best known for evangelizing this, but there are a few others. And we, we think that there's a lot of room to learn about what structures make sense. One of my role models is Michael Milken, except for the part about going to jail, because what he did is he identified a financing gap in the market. He became a leader in financing companies that fit the junk bond model, and that was open source, right? Other people could have done that and did do it and competed with him, but because he was a leader, he got a huge chunk of the business of financing those types of companies. So that's what we would like to build. Uh, thirdly is our tech stack. I think that there's a great opportunity for investors and private companies to get better returns by using technology and analytics in a more sophisticated way. I've published a detailed roadmap of how people like us can get better returns by doing that. And that's absolutely fundamental to our long-term vision. Love it, man. Yeah, I think you're hitting on a lot of the, the points that a lot of our other guests have hit on in, in regards to just like why a lot of VC is stale. <laughs> And you've tracked this and seen this a few different iterations now. Can you maybe talk about the VC tech stack and like why it's becoming more and more of a pressing issue for different venture funds? So the first reason is because the market has just gotten more competitive. So firms need to differentiate. Second is because it's possible, right? If you go back 20 years, there was a lot less data available about companies in terms of their internal human stack, right, who was working there because LinkedIn was not widely used. In terms of their public-facing tech stack, because you, not as many firms had websites with rich information available. There are fewer analytic tools to, to for example, scrape their job listings to determine what technology tools they're using in-house. And so it's hard to use analytics when you don't have data, right? Another factor is that there is, th these sort of practices are filtering down from the public markets investors. In the public markets, we've seen hedge funds like D. Shaw and Two Sigma completely change the way that public markets investing works. Two Sigma looks more like a software company than a traditional hedge fund in terms of how they organize themselves internally. And because they have lots of money, right, they're able to invest a lot of resources in building that. Out. Most private equity VC funds don't have the, the internal resources to invest significant money in hiring engineers at scale. But that sort of worldview and expertise is filtered down to smaller investors. And in the world of hedge funds, the vast majority of VCs, including the, the so-called mega funds, are actually pretty tiny. You know, there are individual hedge funds that have more AUM than the whole VC industry. So that's why I say that we're, we're small relative to the, the big hedge funds. And so I think that that's another factor. And I think that the next generation of leading VCs and private equity funds will be aggressive about using these tools to become more successful. So to that point, 
most VC firms will never have the AUM required to, to take the management fees to build the proprietary software they need. But you live in a returns-driven uh, market, which means that everything is relative. Like, how do you see that evolving? So the bar is really low. In other words, because most firms, even though they might be a customer of Acarta or another one of the many vendors in the space, I think in many cases, they're not fully using the power of the tool because any one of these tools, you have to be diligent about implementing it. For example, I know of numerous funds where, yes, they have a CRM installed, but not everyone is using it. So one partner might have keep their sensitive data on their personal phone as opposed to in the firm CRM. That is not a best practice, right? You're not going to get the proper outcome unless you force people to put the data into the universally used CRM. So there is a lot you can do at a relatively low cost to become more effective in technology and analytics. And that's what I'm doing, right? I only have so much budget. I definitely don't have the Andreessen Horowitz budget. So I have to make this decision myself. And I published uh, a discussion of exactly how I'm triaging where I'm investing money in my own firm in order to have the biggest impact. Most obviously, I've invested a lot of energy in choosing the right CRM system and super customizing it for my particular use case. And I view that as the backbone, right? Because the CRM data is so fundamental to the process of being a VC. Um, so, Clay, you want to talk about Visible? Yeah, sure. And I feel like I have so many questions I could ask you just around adoption of software tools designed for VCs, but at Visible, we help streamline investor communication. So whether that's companies updating their cap table or investors updating their LP base, historically that process has sucked. It's fallen under the role of an analyst, such as myself in previous roles, where a third of your time has just spent collecting data, wrangling cats, and then packaging that up into LP reports. Um, and by the time that, that data is, is fresh and ready to go, it's probably time to updated again. So we streamline all that so investors can actually focus on the things that matter. I had a question though, just kind of piggybacking off adoption of VC software. What are some of the challenges you've observed just from selling to these groups of people? These are people that pride themselves on saying no. I mean, you see it in all these marketing docs where like, yeah, we invest in 2% of the 500 deals we see a year. Do you think that this is a category that there, there can be billion dollar outcomes just because they're, they're going to have to go through so many no's in order to get a yes? So I'm an investor in a number of companies like Earnest Research, which sell to the private equity VC community or more broadly, I should say the investor community. So you can build really significant companies in this space. One thing I like to remind my friends is the wealthiest person in New York City is not an investor per se, right? It's Mike Bloomberg and he made his money selling a tool to Wall Street right, the Bloomberg terminal and the data and analytics associated with it. So, so there's a lot of economic opportunity there. The VC as a market is tiny, right, relative to private equity, relative to the public market. So that's the first thing I would want to think about is, can your product evolve so it can be useful for a broader universe of investors? I, I think that over time, some of these tools will become table stakes in the same way that Bloomberg Terminal is now table stakes if you're a public markets investor. It's a really interesting point. I'd never really heard someone phrase it like that, where the richest person in that city filled with rich people is somebody that's just selling to the people that needed this data, which are the investors. For sure. I mean, when I think about it, I think VC itself can maybe be a hard asset class to get rich on just by taking a piece of their management fees. So if you look at the TAM, it's like, well, what's 2% of the aggregate, the aggregate VC management fees? 
And then you say, well, if that's the case, maybe I can take like up to like 4% of that. And that's your total TAM. But if you look at VC as a B2B to C distribution channel, or like David said, you can pivot into adjacent spaces such as private equity and do the same thing or hedge funds and do the same thing, then it becomes pretty interesting. Or you maybe you can even sell to like the VC lawyers or wherever it might be. You're in a pretty good position. But I do really like VCs as a B2B to C channel because the amount of companies they fund and the scale that they can achieve can be pretty massive. I was going to say Carta is a perfect example of a company that is B2B2B, right? They're selling to the companies, the port codes, and they're also selling to the funds. And that's been a successful model for them. Exactly. Let's sprint to the next thing because David's website has so much valuable information. I would argue that of our open resource database on Confluence, he's probably contributed like a cool like six to nine percent of our content. And uh, you have a really good piece on the 11 steps of the investment process. Maybe you want to walk us through them, maybe you don't. But more interestingly, in terms of giving people the secrets of the, of the trade, which of those steps do you believe are ignored by most funds and why? So when I talk about data analytics in private markets, I find most people interpret that to mean, oh, you're talking about scraping LinkedIn to see which startups have hired a lot of CS grads from top schools or PMs from top FANG companies. And that's valid. You can definitely create value there, but you can also create value at all 11 steps of the investment process, not just in the sourcing side. I will contrast this with a hedge fund world where 90% of the calories at a firm like Two Sigma are around origination. They don't use the word origination. They'll call it trade selection. But I spend huge efforts around picking what trades do we put on. And the reason is because most other steps of the process are super automated. So you can't create much value there, right? So in our world, in VC, um, I think that the step that gets the the lowest level of attention relative to value creation opportunity is portfolio acceleration, right? What happens to the companies after you invest in the five to 10 year window, typically, where you're a shareholder. Uh, and I think that there's a lot you can do over time to help those companies systematically. First Round Capital is a good example of a company of a fund that's done this and creating a vibrant community and set of resources to help their companies over time. Uh, and I, ha I think that there's a lot more that can be done to help out companies at that stage. That's one of the reasons why I like private markets is in public markets, when you invest, you put on your trade, you go long IBM, great. So what can you do next? You can pray, you can hedge, or you can sell, that's about it. But in private markets, you can actually nudge the roulette wheel and improve your odds by sitting on their board, by bringing in clients, doing lots of other things to help out the company. How do you think about that value creation with different stages? I mean, I think especially at the pre-seed stage, it could be forming a community around these investors, providing a bunch of resources like you've done. But then as you get more established, farther along, it becomes more about customer investor intros. How do you kind of triage that, at least within your strategy? So that's a longer conversation. Briefly, for my particular firm, we're investing at the early stage. So we are helping in recruiting. We're doing a lot of other things that are appropriate for firms where inherently the management team is incomplete, right? At the point we invest, they definitely don't have an experienced executive in all of the different functions you need to grow the company. Um, for some of the growth stage companies that I'm an investor in, especially given I've been doing this for a while, right? A lot of my older companies are, one of them is just filed for spec. So 
in that case, there are different levers that you can use to support them. But there's still ways to add value. And the proof point, of course, is look at the world of late state private equity. Look at the activist investors, the Bill Ackman's of the world to deal with public companies, right? At every level, there are things an investor can do to add value or destroy value in a company. Are there, are there any areas within the 11 steps that you think can add the most value or the least value? Um, It depends on your individual fund and your fund strategy. I think that for most early mid-stage companies, recruiting is another absolutely critical point. One of the great challenges in our industry is in the old world, 40 years ago, you joined a GE and you rose up by rotating through different functions and businesses within a conglomerate. In the new world, you might start your job at Google, but then you go to a startup and then they shut down. And then you go get a job at another startup and they shut down. And in an ideal world, you would then go to another company that would recognize the experiences you had at those two prior startups, but that's not necessarily what happens, right? So I, the, the investor community has a lot of value creation here by helping mitigate the risk of joining an early stage company, but providing some credentialing function that says, sure, you were previously CMO to a failed company, but you did a great job, it wasn't your fault, and your next job should be at a comparable or higher level of seniority and comp to recognize your experience. So both on a societal level and on individual investors IRR level, I'm very interested in how you more efficiently move human capital around the ecosystem. So everyone talks about how you learn more from failure than success, but society rewards the opposite of that. Yeah, and it's a, it, only privileged people say things like that. Because the reality is, if you don't come from family money and you've got a decent job at a decent firm and you go join some startup and they fail, you can be really screwed, right? You lost that, it can be hard to go back to Google or some other big thing company. And then you go work for a bunch of other small startups that don't offer the cash comp. So I generally recommend people have a very high bar for joining a startup company. I'm a VC, right? So I have a diversified portfolio, but for your career, you don't have that. You can only work for one company at a time. And if it fails, potentially, your equity is worth zero. You probably took a below market salary for a while. It's a real issue. And so I think that it's really important that we try and mitigate this. One of my models here is Wells Carson, which is a prominent private equity fund. They advertised on their website that 40% of their management teams previously worked at another Welsh Carson company. So what they're doing is they're synthetically creating the equivalent of the old school corporate career track where you go from one division of GE to another. Because if you're a rising controller at one Welsh Carson company and the CFO who's above you, your boss, is 35 years old, not going anywhere, they'll help you get a job at some other Welsh Carson company where you can be CFO right? And you're still in the overall family and you still get credit for having done a good job in your prior job as a controller. I love that, man. We have a lot more that we want to cover, but something that I want to think about with you, of the things that have changed since you started FFVC, what's been the most shocking development or change over the past decade? So I think it's commendable that in the last two years or so, there's been a much more significant focus on diversity, including from people who I wouldn't have predicted that if you'd asked me 10 years ago. But the pathetic thing is, if you actually look at the data, 
on diversity, it's still really, really poor, right? There is a whole wave of new emerging manager funds led by diverse managers, but the total AUM of them combined is pretty modest. Um, and partly because the mega funds are getting much bigger, right? The total AUM that is managed by diverse people still remains tiny. I do have optimism that this will change over time, but, but it takes a while. I do give our industry a little bit of credit. At least people talk about it more. I definitely have talked with a number of VC firms who said, hey, we're looking to hire a new partner. And we have a really, really, really strong bias to hire someone who doesn't look like all the other current partners. And that's great. Also, valuations of, I remember... 10 years ago, complaining about valuations seemed a little frothy. And look at us now, right? So at some point, this will be proven true. And people say, wait a second, this is kind of crazy. I lived through 99. So I definitely lived through that awakening moment. But, but we're not there yet. And so I would not have predicted 10 years ago that people would be comfortable writing the type of valuation checks that they're writing now for often quite young and unimproven companies. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. Also, like in regards to time in the space, you were ahead of a, a trend, which is general solicitation as you're raising a fund. That was pretty forward thinking at the time. What were the conversations like behind closed doors and what was some of the logic behind like actually going through with it? So I can't share all the conversations, but I will say that we knew that there's always a benefit to being the first to do something. It also means you get the arrows in your back. And so we were excited to do that and be able to go on TV and talk about our returns because it is a huge annoyance that in our industry, you, you can't, unless you're generally soliciting, you can't actually talk hard numbers in a public context. Um, what I will highlight though is you'd asked earlier what's been surprising or shocking to me. So we're now eight years past 2013 and the number of funds that have raised the general solicitation is still tiny. Uh, I think we may have, barely gotten out of single digits. And so that goes to how general solicitation to date has not been as successful as people thought it would be. I hope that changes, and I'm an investor in Republic, which is very much a leader in this area, republic.co. But that said, it's not mainstream yet. Got it. Well, can you talk a little bit about some of the pros and cons of the of the 506C regulation? Well, the pros are you can talk publicly about your returns. You can build a financially motivated community around you who will help you source deals and maybe work for your companies and so on. That's exciting. But the downsides are signaling. When you're raising capital for a fund, you're fundamentally selling a luxury good. And it's seen as more valuable because it's scarce. That's part of the secret of the hedge fund industry's success in gathering assets. Uh, right? Hedge fund industry collectively does a great job of making hedge fund managers rich and not so much the limited partners. And yet, they still have a lot of assets, right? So why is that? Because it is seen as prestigious to invest in a hedge fund and seen as a sign of naivete to invest in mutual funds. And so I think that that sort of, the fact that you're selling a luxury good that is hard to access makes it seem more attractive to a lot of people. So that's a factor. Another factor is friction. You have to verify that investors are in fact accredited, reviewing their tax forms and bank statements and so on. You can typically outsource this for as little 60 bucks to companies like verifyinvestor.com or early IQ, but it's still a hassle, right? It's one more point of friction getting people to fill, to get their money over. Um, and then you're going to get more tire kickers, people who are not serious buyers who want to talk with you. It is generally a lot easier to raise a small number of large checks to deal with the people who can write the six, seven, eight digit checks. 
Uh, and even though you'll have lots of tire kickers there also, at least you know that in the best case scenario, you'll get a large check from them. I'll share with you one of my favorite stories about fundraising. But one of my prior VC firms, we had a three-hour meeting with an extremely well-regarded institutional investor, um, one of the top investors in VC funds globally. And at the end of the meeting, we said, great meeting, what are next steps? And this investor said, well, our average time from first meeting to wiring a check to a new VC fund is four years. So he said, well, we're glad we had the meeting today so we could start the four-year clock ticking, right? That's how long some institutional investors take before they actually give you money. Wow. Wow. Feel that. I, I, I had a lot of insight into the potential signaling risk, but I hadn't thought about the timeline. Also hadn't, haven't given much thought to like, what that might feel like, right? Okay, next piece. So let's talk alternative forms of VC. What fascinates you most within that gambit? Well, let me share with you one of the most shocking statistics that most people are not aware of in our industry. If you look at the Inc. 5000 companies, right, fastest growing companies in the U.S., only 6.5% raise money from VCs and 7.7% raised from angels. So we have this whole industry devoted to identifying fast growth companies, and we're desperate to put checks to work, and we as an industry collectively manage to invest in less than 10% of all the companies we should invest in. That's crazy. So why is that? Well, it's a couple of layers of reasons. One of them is that for all the VCs love to bang on uh, consumer packaged goods and restaurants is, oh, it's not scalable, blah, blah, blah. Look at Sriraka Sauce, right? Look at MyPillow. There are lots of companies which VCs wouldn't, most VCs would not touch, but actually make a lot of money for the investors who came in early. So I think that that indicates that we need to rethink some of the models in traditional VC. One prominent reason for that is that the standard structure that VCs use, right, preferred equity and convertible notes, NVCA standard term sheet or YC template for the safe, right? That works for certain narrowly defined type of company. It doesn't work for a lot of others. If you look at most wealthy people in the world, they didn't get wealthy by selling off most of their company to strangers and then exiting. They got wealthy by tightly controlling equity, funding their growth, and then at some point they got liquidity. Or maybe not, and then they still own a big chunk of the, the equity. So, for example, if you look at the big public companies in the U.S., oftentimes the founding company still owns a big chunk of the stock, right? So I want to get in, figure out ways that we can finance those companies, support those companies, and this will open the entrepreneurial doors to a lot more people. In particular, I think there's a built-in bias in traditional VC, right? Traditional VC encourages people to take great risks, right? And we applaud the people like Bill Gates and Michael Dell, Mark Zuckerberg, who dropped out of college and built companies. And I certainly commend them for doing that. But let's be honest, those are privileges. The, the opportunity to drop out of college, right, and start a company, that is a privilege of coming from an affluent background, which all all those folks came from backgrounds of some education and privilege. And so if their startup failed, they could have just gone back, finished their degree at a reputable school and gone, gotten, a, gotten a job at Goldman Sachs or whatever. So I think that if you can figure out ways to lower the risk in starting a company and encourage people to become profitable, or at least give them, make sure there is a path to profitability, you will open it up to more types of founders. I published research in this showing that 
the VCs who invest in using alternative structures are attracting disproportionate numbers of women and other founders from underrepresented backgrounds, and they're actually wiring money to founders from underrepresented backgrounds. And what's striking to me is they're not doing it from a quota lens of, oh, we're investing you because of your gender or your race or whatever, right? They're doing it because organically, from the nature of the financial instrument, you're getting a broader set of founders and you're going to invest in some small percentage of them. And that's really exciting to me. I've certainly spoken with some founders who happen to be women or minorities who say, look, I'll take money from whoever will give me money because realistically it's hard to raise money. But all spin equal, I would rather raise money from Sequoia or some other traditional VC, not from the VC that says we're only investing you because of gender or race in addition to all the other credentials, right? Because I want to compete in the big pool with all the other founders. I think I'm just as good as those other founders who might come from a different background as me, and I should get money from the traditional VCs just like they do. And so these sort of alternative VC structures allow you to accomplish a diversity goal without headlining that you're investing because of the particular set of chromosomes you were born with. To that point, what I would say is traditional VC rewards people for having certain milestones already met. And those who do invest on just ideas or invest incredibly early tend to rely on networks, which minorities and women are typically not part of because of systemic reasons. And that these alternative forms of investing, these give people space and time and just enough uh, capital to get to those milestones. Let's put it this way. I certainly have talked with underrepresented founders who view it as a negative signal for themselves. They'd rather have money from Sequoia than from uh, a fund that has it as a thesis. But that said, they'll take money from where they can get it. And I support the firms that their thesis to specifically target underrepresented founders. And that's part of the versatile VC thesis is to make a point of building relationships with communities of underrepresented founders, because we know that just by waving a sign saying, hey, we welcome your inquiry, right? We will invest in you. You don't need a warm intro. That will create better opportunities set for us, and it's good for the ecosystem. So my point, though, is that, that there, there is this negative signal, which I, I think players should acknowledge, and I'm very interested in ways to get around it. I met a while ago with two African-American gentlemen who were starting a new VC fund, and we were talking about to what extent they wanted a headline with that, and we all agreed it didn't make sense for this particular firm to headline that we have a particular interest in the African-American community, because you look at the website and the team page and it's kind of obvious, right? You don't see that many websites of VC firms that look like that. That will make the point enough and they can just talk about their areas of technology they're interested in and so on. And inevitably, they're going to get more deal flow from the African-American community than a lot of other VCs because the founders come from that background. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I guess there is some advantage to SEO. Other than that, like, I, I think the bigger point that you're hitting on is like, be it, don't say it. Okay, how about we take a moment for you, David, to ask me and Clay anything in the world, whether it be about venture capital, life, emotions, video games, anything in the world, and we will answer in full transparency. And then we have Clay take us out with the rapid fire round. My real question for you is what do you want to do with Confluence? Where do you want to take it? But I suspect that's not a question you can answer in two minutes. So we can talk offline about that sometime. No, I mean, we want Confluence to be an enablement layer for 
every person who comes into venture capital from analysts to partners. And we want it to be a community that shortcuts that, that, that space. And on the back end of that, like you look at it as anything from a job board, which we recently launched to what we started with, which was an open resource database to a, a closed loop network of people on Slack or whatever channel that we use to automated introductions to, you know, now a fun and a future GP scout program where we quite literally give our community members who are part of the top 1% of the community or show promise or hustle their own funds to prove themselves. And that's the next like two to five years, maybe. And from there, I don't know, maybe we'll become a SaaS company. I'm kidding. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, I would just echo all that. I know we can probably like continue the conversation offline as well because I feel like we could literally talk about that for another hour. But I want to be mindful of your time too, David. So if it's cool with you, I can just close this out with this quick fire round where we've got five questions for you meant to be answered in two sentences or less. First one we've got is what is a recommendation you hear regularly that you think is bad advice? Found a company. VCs have a diversified portfolio and most of their investments fail. And so I don't think you should found a company until you've assessed at least 10 different ideas and it meets the same bar as a VC. Love that. Next one in the last year, what new belief behavior habit has most improved your I do bodyweight exercises and, and parkour and I've historically focused more on strength. I would say I've focused more on doing certain difficult moves and not enough on form. And so I'm focusing more on form, which in the long run will improve my ability to do some of the more challenging moves in the world of bodyweight exercises and calisthenics. I think you're the first parkour athlete we've had on here. I, I would, parkour athlete is a little too strong, but I do do a few things that are challenging. <laughs> I mean, I think that's better than me. I don't, I don't think I could do that. I think I'm too long for it. All right, next one we've got, aside from having to say no all the time, what's the worst part about venture? Oh, it's a liquid. And if your fund performs very well, which most funds don't, you're still going to get rich slow because it is illiquid. And that's the nature of the, the space. But the good news is it means you have a built-in pension fund. Next one, best piece of advice for junior VCs or those aspiring to break into venture? Pick a competency like analytics or marketing or software engineering or an industry and go deep into it. It's like college admissions. I think there's a lot of value in being spiky. In the best case scenario, you pick something like crypto in 2015. And if you did that, by now you're probably a partner at a large fund, right? Because you picked a sector that became huge. Couldn't agree more. I think that's one of the, there's a lot of good things about starting a career in venture. I think one of the bad things is just being way too much of a generalist and not being able to go deep in any subject. But I think that's really good advice. We've heard that from a couple other people and I couldn't agree more. Last one here, who's a mentor of yours that you'd want to give credit to? Um, John Frankel, the founder of FF Venture Capital is the first person who gave me a job in VC. So I definitely want to express my appreciation to him. Love it. Love it. Well, cool. That wraps up quick fire. I think that wraps up core questions as well. I know we're going a little bit over, but this has been awesome. I feel like that was just packed with so much tactical advice, both for us and for everybody else. So yeah, just want to say thank you again for coming on and agreeing to do this. Thank you very much for having me. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Hopefully it's helpful to the community and look forward to continued cooperation with you.
Huge thanks again to David for coming on this week. We hope that each of you were able to pick up something valuable from this talk. If you're looking to get in touch with David, we've linked his social info below as well as his fund and personal website where all of his media collection is. You can also find his contact info within the Confluence VC directory. For next steps, if you're an investor and have not already signed up to join, we encourage you to check out our website at www.confluence.vc to submit your info to become a member. If you have any feedback for us, please feel free to reach out directly either to Tyler at tyler at gpv.com or myself at clay at Hope to hear from you all soon.